Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, welcome to the podcast. It's episode 402 for February 24th, 2021. Our guest today is Jay Hodge from Jay Hodge and Associates. You'll hear more about him in a minute, but it's a really interesting conversation. What was it like teaching the Toyota production system at General Motors and then going to work for Toyota? We'll talk about the culture piece. We'll talk about servant leadership. We'll talk about leadership lessons from being a Marine. We'll talk about all of that and more. If you want to find show notes and links, you can go to leanblog.org 402. I want to tell you again about a collaboration effort with other lean podcasters, a website called leancommunicators.com. I hope you'll check that out. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Please do rate and review the podcast if you have a minute. Thanks again. All right. Well, we are joined today uh, on the podcast by Jay Hodge. He is founder and president of Jay Hodge and Associates, a little bit about Jay. He has over 25 years of operational leadership experience in companies such as Toyota, General Motors, Caterpillar, and Tenet Healthcare. So we're, we're sure gonna have a lot to talk about today. Jay is author of a book called The Lean Treasure Chest. He's the creator of something called the Dynamic Elemental Engagement System, so we can maybe touch on that. And Jay is also um, just now launching a podcast. So with that, Jay, welcome to my podcast and welcome to the podcasting world. How are you? I'm good, Mark. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on today. And boy, you listen to the intro and I, I'm impressed with myself, but then I look in the mirror and I realize, no, it's not all that. Well, so thank you for leading with humility, Jay. <laughs> An important, important link concept, right? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. So, um, so, so, um, you know, it's just real quick. I'd be curious. So, um, tell us about the podcast. You're, you're, you're talking to podcast listeners. So that's a, a great, yes. great, great place to pitch uh, your own podcast. What's it called? What's it about? Well, it's called the thousand year legacy. And basically it's a, it's a podcast. It doesn't focus specifically on the professional side. It focuses on the personal side. Um, you know, you look at anybody, probably anybody that you've had on your, your own podcast is they have a, a lean side. They have something that they do for a living. But when we think about what we do for a living and in, in the end game, it's a very small percentage of really what we hope to accomplish in life. And so I came up with the thousand year legacy simply because I like to, to combine what we've accomplished in our careers, what we've been able to accomplish with our families and our personal life. And then, you know, if we had five minutes left, what would our legacy, what would we want it to look like? And I, I like to, I called it that simply because I want to go beyond the personal and the professional to the lasting side, our legacy. Well, it's, it's a great title. And I mean, you know, talking about legacy and, you know, that, that makes me think of, of Toyota concepts, like long-term thinking. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of mm -hmm. um, principles and values and things that are more timeless than, let's say, hitting the number this month or this quarter, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So we've obviously had some of the same background. So yes, oh, very we, much so. We have a lot of the same background. And um, I'll warn you, you talking about um, your time at General Motors may trigger a story or two for me. And I'll, I'll, I'll try not to tell stories that I tend to tell um, all the time. No. I want to hear your 
Uh, I want to hear your stories today, Jay. <laughs> That's fine. I've probably got quite a few of them. So, um, so you know, one question just you know to help get things started, I like to ask guests, where did you first learn about lean? What were those earlier experiences? How did this even um, come to be something that you were doing and interested in? You know, I'd say I really started to learn about lean in the Marine Corps because, you know, in flight operations, there's an efficiency that has to take place. The interesting thing is in the Marine Corps, they didn't call it lean. They called it efficient operations. They called it getting things done quickly, um, being prepared for battle. Um, But where I really um, got immersed, quote unquote, immersed into lean was with General Motors, believe it or not. I know um, I actually... Um, you know, Toyota back in early 2000s, um, General Motors wanted to not mirror, but follow some of the same concepts as Toyota because Toyota was doing everything right. They were they were the benchmark and still are, in my opinion, um, for for lean and being um, efficient and effective, high quality, um, engaged employees. And so General Motors, um, at least the plan I was working with, wanted to embrace that. And so I started teaching the Toyota production system at a metal fabrication plant in Marion, Indiana. Um, Great group of people. Um, I can't say that everybody embraced it for obvious reasons. I mean, it's union environment versus Toyota, which is a non-union environment. Nothing negative against the union, but it's a different mentality. Um, Very segmented roles for almost every position you could think of, and you don't cross those lines. Whereas in Toyota, it's the exact opposite. You are a team and you're responsible for getting it done, you and the team, you know, cross training, changing positions throughout the um, shift and all that. That's just not something that General Motors was familiar with. So I got immersed um, by teaching it at General Motors and we actually implemented a a lean production line on an assembly plant or a a stamping line. And uh, it was, I had to get volunteers. I couldn't just tell people they had to do it. I had to get people that were willing to try something different. You know, we implemented, you know, job sharing. We implemented the just-in-time inventory. We implemented um, all of the things that Toyota does, you know, stopping the line, uh, quality first. I mean, just, it was a whole different ball game and it was very, very effective, but it was only effective. And I have to keep this in mind. It was only effective because the people that were within the process believed in the process and were engaged. It wasn't me that made it successful. It was the team. Yeah. So we can delve into that a little bit. So you were there um, from 2000 to 2004, it says mm-hmm. in your profile. Um, I was I was at General Motors 1995 to 1997. Oh, wow. Um, um, engine uh, engine plant. So you you were involved in, let's say, stamping and fabrication. Mm-hmm. I was in uh, machining lines. You know, we were okay. Taking metal off of engine blocks and mm-hmm. powdered metal connecting rods for those who who know that technology. Um, but yeah, you, you know, the, you, to your comment of, well, not everybody was into it. Like in 1995, like our, our plant's performance um, on, on different measurable dimensions was clearly bottom of the barrel. Like there was mm-hmm. no denying that. And we had benchmark plants, including a Toyota plant. And the data was clear. Like we could, you know, people could disagree about what the reasons were. But Toyota's performance gap, um, leaving General Motors in the dust in a lot of ways, was quite clear. And there, there was tension. I mean, General Motors, um, we, if I remember right, I mean, gosh, you, you didn't want to really mention Toyota. 
the word lean wasn't being used a lot. They were talking about things like, you know, quote unquote, global manufacturing system. I've still got this yep. little guidebook. Yes. Basically, it, but, but I'm looking back at it and I've even looked at it recently. Like it's, it's the mechanics of TPS mm -hmm. laid out in that book. And I think what was more difficult, I want to hear your thoughts on this, um, was around the culture mm -hmm. and the management style. Um, I was curious to hear more of your thoughts about that. I'd like to then you know, go into some of the details of what it meant to set up a lean production line. But what, what did you face like around culture as opposed to putting in and on cords and let's say rearranging equipment? It's, to your point, it's the, it was the culture. I still have my sweater when they rolled out GMS. I've still got the sweater with the big GMS logo right there. Um, and I wear it sometimes, believe it or not. Um, but it, it is the culture. And, and, you know, I made the comment a few minutes ago about it was doing this in a union environment was different, was very difficult in some ways. But it wasn't just the union that made it difficult. It was the leadership that made it difficult because you're talking about a very dictatorial type of leadership. We're going to do this. We're going to get this done. You're always ready for confrontation. I mean, you walked in as, a, as an operations manager. I, I walked in every day ready for this every single day, all day long. And that was the environment where I was under the first plant manager I worked under for a year, a very traditional plant manager. And yes, it was testy and it was combative between the union and management. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so getting people to, to understand that it wasn't about me, this, this wasn't about me. GMS wasn't about me. The lean system wasn't about me. It was about what we do and who we are and how we perform because you know whether you're a union environment or a non-union environment everybody that walks in that door wants to be part of the winning team and to be part of the winning team you don't become the winning team by winning you become the winning team by thinking different than everybody else which allows you to win and so it changed it, it changed how people thought about what they did every single day instead of someone, you know, who did this same job and stood at the end of the line every single day, holding parts and dropping them in a, into a container. Once they understood, because all of a sudden they started loading the blanks in the back also, all of a sudden they were on the fork truck. They started to understand how everybody interacted with each other. And all of a sudden the bigger picture comes into play. And they start understanding exactly the teamwork. And that's how why Toyota is so successful is because when they say, you know, when I, when I train organizations now, when I say team, I'm not talking uh, philosophical. I'm talking a team. You are responsible. You are part of the success of every single person on that team. So, so the culture I was a part of um, was one of divisiveness and blame. You know, mm -hmm. I was out on the, I was out on the shop floor a lot, and um, the 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 union UAW member employees who were out there running machines, they wanted to do good work. Mm -hmm. And I've got stories. I, I won't you know get into all of it now. Where management decisions were very directly undermining quality. Mm -hmm. Like what, for example, not a lot. You know, there, there's a quality control plan that says every. 30 parts, you have to stop the line momentarily, pull something off and do some manual gauging of critical dimensions. Well, when we would be uh, behind in our production numbers, different levels of management would say, no, you can't do that. Keep the line running. We can't afford to stop. And, and, and that would just further corrode any sense of teamwork 
or trust. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that had accumulated. Everyone I was working with had been there for 30 or 35 years. So, you know, I learned and, and saw, sadly, that people get beat down. They get worn mm-hmm. down. And you might look and occasionally I would see people build a little cardboard fort and take a nap and sleep during the day. And it would be easy to look and say, well, that guy's lazy. That's everything that's wrong with the Detroit automakers. I'm like, give that guy, you know, give that guy a break. Like what Mm -hmm. what's he been through for 30 years? I I, I tried to learn some empathy of -hmm. why people would check out and give up when they weren't part of a team that was you know built around trust. Absolutely. And I, I think that's some of the reason that, that we were successful in what we did is I'd spent, you know, the first four years in operations managing managing production. And so to move into that role, I knew most of the people. In fact, I knew all of the people because they volunteered to be part of, of the team that I was creating. But you're exactly right. We, It's as much, if not more, of a leadership culture issue than it is the union issue because as leaders, and I saw this many, many times, and so did, so did you. You just mentioned it. We we say this is what we stand for. This is what we're going to produce. We are every single part that leaves this facility is going to be at this level of quality, and until we get behind, or until someone calls and they they need to pull some parts in advance, they they need to pull it earlier. And all of a sudden, um, quality now instead of being number one becomes number two or three or four. Because we got to hit, and and any time that we do that, anytime we do the opposite of what we say, regardless of union or non-union, our people all of a sudden stop believing everything we say because we've just subverted our own legitimacy. We've just uh, subverted their any reason for them to have confidence in us to begin with, so they're not going to trust what we say next time. And then we turn around and go, I don't understand why people are being so difficult. Why do they not trust us? Why would they? You probably wouldn't trust yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, and I saw, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the leadership resistance, if you will, um, it's taken me time to think back and be more empathetic towards some of the leaders mm-hmm. that I worked under, where I would have been quick um, to, to label them um, in a, uh, a derogatory way for their behavior that I saw. Um, when we got a second plant manager, that second plant manager was one of the original um, General Motors Numi people. Oh, Numi, yes. He was one of the original, quote unquote, Numi commandos. And um, we were, I think, the third plant he had come into post Numi. So he had a different leadership style. Expecting, uh, you know, like, for example, I mean, you know, at some point, the union contract, you would appreciate this. Um, instead of production foreman, they were now called team coordinators. Oh, they were foremen with a different title. Like yes. changing the title didn't create any sort of warm and fuzzy, different approach. They were still acting the way they had always acted, and right. and and that's difficult when people have again like decades of habit accumulated and ex- expectations mm-hmm. have been set, and we can come in. And, and I, you know, this might have been similar to the role you were in. Like there were internal lean consultants that powertrain headquarters had hired in uh, from Nissan and from some Toyota suppliers. And then they were brought in and they, it was frustrating for them because oh, yeah. they were sent in to solve a problem that leadership didn't, they didn't define the problem that way. Mm-hmm. Right. So you had the, you know, these, these internal people, seven or eight of them, um, like literally exiled into a mezzanine level office where they 
they were basically told, here, stay out of the way. Right. Don't bother us. But they ended up being good mentors to me. Um, so part, part of my question for you, like, you know, who, who were some of your teachers or mentors? Because you know, there were opportunities to learn within General Motors, even if it wasn't the predominant culture there. Right. I, th- I think the uh, I had a couple um, senior leaders at my plant that were they were common sense kind of guys. Um, in fact, one of them was a, a female and just just so they got it. They understood that the union is made up of people. They understood that leadership is made up of people. Everybody has different objectives and they saw the big picture. They didn't get into the little itsy bitsy fighting feuding all of that they got past that and so i think them helping me understand that because you know before before they kind of took me under their wing you know you walk in you're ready for battle i'm i want to battle it almost becomes um the way a way of life and so they taught me how to deal with people differently even people that were being difficult even people that were were doing things that made no sense, even people that were sabotaging the production just so that they would get overtime this weekend because they needed to make a payment on the boat. I was going to say boat because in Michigan it was it was a boat or or a snowmobile. But oh yeah, I had I had people uh, buy brand new trucks. I, I knew of people that buy, bought brand new trucks and then bought a brand new boat and then had the boat painted so that it matched the color scheme of the truck. And I'm like. Okay, if you have looked back in the last five, 10 years, mm-hmm. automotive is very cyclical. All this overtime you're seeing mm-hmm. is probably going to go away at some point. Are you ready for that? It's just. In my plant, the bulletin board would have, uh, when, when the overtime was drying up, you would see stuff going up for sale. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Part of the, uh, but the you know what? That's, yeah. That, yeah. that's the amazing thing. That's one of the huge differences that I think stand out between Toyota and General Motors. And I know we're going to start talking about Toyota in a minute. When I went to work for Toyota, one of the things that Toyota did, and this was just so amazing, is they gave out the Dave Ramsey whole package, the Dave Ramsey money management. And Dave Ramsey talks specifically about don't buy new cars. Don't buy used cars. Now, what do you say? You've got a car manufacturer giving out packages to their employees, telling them don't buy new cars. But it's because Toyota saw the big picture. They understood that people, when they managed their money and their finances effectively, they were happier at home, but they were also much better employees, more productive and, and you know, just, yeah, two yeah, well, night and day type difference. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you even think of encouraging people to buy um, a used car coming off lease where it's already taken the depreciation mm-hmm. You can still have a warranty and, you know, a lot of the benefits, you know, by buying a nearly new car, Um, you know, I'm sure even if you really had to boil it down to business conditions, um, you know, strong demand for used cars helps resell values, which helps encourage people buy the people who Mm -hmm. are buying new cars with an employee discount or not. But I appreciate your point of, um, you know, kind of look having having, uh, you know, respect for people and, and educating people. Um, and then that comes back in different ways. Like you said, happier, less distracted mm-hmm. workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yep. a great point. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask, yeah, I want to talk about your Toyota um, experience. Um, 
Well, we'll we'll save like some of those details of what that lean production line was like for for another day, maybe because I think it, it's the culture piece. Like for a lot of the listeners who um, work in healthcare or other settings, the things that are really transferable, um, you know, are about people. But I, I wanted to ask one other thing. You, you talked about um, going into battle, which made me think back to your experience um, as a Marine. Um, recently, I also interviewed um, Patrick Adams, um, interviewed him for my uh, my favorite mistake podcast series. I'm going to hold uh, the mug up. No, actually, no, no, no. I have that wrong. Um, I interviewed him for this lean podcast series. I think that's already been um, published now. Um, so he's got a book coming out. But anyway, um, I, I just... Boy, I, I shoehorned in that plug for the other podcast, and it was a mistake. It was impressive. It was a mistake about a <laughs> anyway, so that's, that was unintentional. It's all right. Oof, that proves my point. But anyway, Patrick um, is a Marine, and you serve in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, he talked about the leadership lessons, mm-hmm. and, he, you know, he talked about servant leadership. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had some reflections you'd want to share from your experience there. Absolutely. I think uh, – um, my favorite commanding officer. My last two and a half years were stationed in Washington, D.C. at Andrews Air Force Base. It was an F-18 squadron right next to the F-16 squadron. So we had airspace control. Um, one of my favorite experiences that, I, that I've used for years to talk about is me and one of my buddies were out and I, I worked on the communication navigation, um, special weapon systems for the F-18s. And so we're out there in the middle of the winter working on an aircraft at night. It's cold, it's snowing, it's miserable, but we had to get this fixed. Um, so I've got my half my body stuck up inside of one of these bays trying to, to work on a piece of equipment. And I'm, it's, oh, it was so miserable. And uh, I reached my hand out and I told my buddy what I need, a tool. He doesn't, not, doesn't hand it to me. I'm like, what the heck's going on? He said, Tell him again, nothing. Finally, reach back one more time and say a few choice words that I didn't normally use, and I still don't use. So, if my kids are listening to this, I don't use those words, okay? But I did at that point. Frustration uh, was kicking in. You were cold. I was cold and miserable. And I turned around and I said a couple things. And who was standing there but my commanding officer, Ah. full bird, full bird colonel, (laughs) Mm -hmm. looking through the toolbox to try and find the tool for me. And my corporal buddies just standing there pointing saying, yeah, it's right there, sir. It's right there, sir. <laughs> and so I turned around and said, I apologize, sir. I did not realize you were there. And uh, he, he finally found the tool and he gave it to me and I went in there and I fixed it. But what, what stood out to me is this. It was probably one o'clock in the morning, freezing, miserable. That colonel had no reason to be out there other than the fact that he was out there with his men. He could have been at home in bed. He could have been warm. He could have been doing colonel stuff, which is a lot more comfortable than what I was doing. But he made a decision to go out in the cold, miserable night and to be cold and miserable with his men. And I tell you what, to this day, if I saw him on a street and he said, I want to go jump off a bridge, I'd be, I'm right behind you, sir. Yeah. Whatever you need. Servant leadership. Well, and, and back in episode 382, I had a chance to talk with um, Tom Peters, and um, he was uh, in the Seabees um, at the you know the, uh, er, er, you know early in, in his career. And but anyway, I think you know his one lesson, what he said vividly in that podcast was talking. I, I think he, this is how he put it. Um, I'm quoting him as directly as I can. If you're a leader. And you don't absolutely get off on being on the shop floor at 2 a.m. 
with your people, then you're in the wrong line of work. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, you know, that's, that's kind of hard for, especially in healthcare, that's hard to get people to understand is that whether you're a COO, a CNO, a, CO, a CEO, at two o'clock in the morning, when you walk around that facility and those people see you, all of a sudden they realize you're their leader. Because most of the time you're in this ivory tower and they see you once or twice a year at different celebrations and all that. And all of a sudden they realize, wait a second, they're out here with us. Okay. And, and you know, you start talking about trust, you're talking about, start talking about collaboration, engagement. None of that happens until you trust your leader. Yeah. None of it. Yeah. And um, yes, I was, you, what, yeah, I was, I was having similar thoughts around, um, questions around how often does that happen in healthcare? Do people even know who their leaders are? Um, which sometimes the answer is no. They struggle with it. They struggle with it. I'm working with the C, um, CEO right now and a COO and a team. They get it. And you can see the difference. You can see the difference in the organization. And, and, and it's, it's interesting people when they hire me as a consultant to come in and help work with their leadership team or help implement a management system people say, Oh, you're here to fix this. I'm like, I don't even know where your bathroom is. I just got here. How in the world could I ever fix you? But that's what um, they expect from an outside consultant. They do. They do. And that's one of the first things I say, I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to help you understand your processes and fix yourself. Right. Plain and simple. Yeah. So we'll, we'll delve into the healthcare piece or, or maybe, I mean, gosh, we could do a whole additional <laughs> episode at some point about healthcare, I want to talk yeah. more about your your Toyota experience. That was your next step in your career. But one other reflection I was going to share, you know, thinking about you know time at General Motors and maybe there's a comparison to um, Toyota, well, and to healthcare. So um, you know, Toyota is famous for promoting people from within. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a, a team leader, you worked as a team member. If you're a group leader, you worked as a team leader, and um, at General Motors, the tendency was to hire somebody right out of college with an engineering degree or a business degree. Um, I interviewed for some of these jobs and I didn't really want, I think I knew enough about workplaces to say, why would you bring me in to supervise work I don't understand, work mm -hmm. I haven't done? Um, that was, I think, part of the problem with the GM model. Now, healthcare does tend to promote um, up through the ranks. Like it's very rare that a laboratory director is not a medical technologist. Mm -hmm. I've seen it. And that could be effective because when I think back to um, my friend, Stephanie Mitchell, um, she had been a nursing director when that out of necessity, she kind of stepped up and said, okay, I'll be the lab director. She couldn't fall back on telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. She was kind of like, you know, to, to, to what you were saying, um, Jay, um, she couldn't fix them, but she could lead. Right. Yeah. I think there's a couple things going on when you look at General Motors versus Toyota versus healthcare. I think there's some differences. At, at General Motors, um, I think they struggled with leadership to begin with. What real leadership means, whether you're a level seven or an eight or a six, whatever, supervisor, shop floor, whatever. They struggled with what leadership was. Um, if, if I was to go back to my plant during those times, there were some good leaders, but they struggled with leading because leadership didn't look like leadership. It looked like um, a boxing match. 
whoever had the biggest gloves. Um, and so, you know, as, as if you're a, uh, someone just coming into General Motors, you know, you're brought up in that environment. So you're going to be that way when you progress through the, through the level six, through level seven, through level eight, up to all these different levels. That's leadership. That's what it looks like. And so you become plant manager. And guess what? That's what it still looks like. In, in, in healthcare, I think it's a little different because in healthcare, what I've found um, is that they don't know what leadership is to begin with a lot of times. So leadership, and this isn't the the, the ones I'm working with right now. Um, they understand this and they're doing a very good job. But I've worked with some where we take someone who's really good technically. They're really, really proficient technically. And all of a sudden we have an opening and we said, you know what, let's promote them to manager. Oh, yes, absolutely. We can teach them how to do productivity. We can teach them about budgets. We can teach them about how to do overtime scheduling, all these good things, put in work orders. Oh, but we don't have the time to teach them what it means to lead. Right. Um, because There's the mechanics of being a manager. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, 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 no. You're fine. Be- because we teach them how to manage the processes of that role. But we never teach them how to lead the people. And, you know, everybody I talk to, I tell them, you know, leadership would be much easier without people. It's absolutely true. Leadership would be easy without people because you wouldn't have anything to lead. But we what we found is what I found is that we take people and we promote them to manager. We don't give them leadership skills. Then we promote them to director. We don't give them leadership skills. Then we promote them to to senior director or VP or COO or CNO. We don't give them leadership skills. And all of a sudden, we have this this entire organization that's struggling with leadership. Well, of course, you're going to be struggling with leadership. You've never brought up any leaders. You've just brought up people that either were head nodders or they were proficient in their role. And so we struggle with leadership. Toyota, on the other hand, taught people how to lead at the very base level. They taught, they teach their people how to be leaders before they're leaders. They teach them how to show respect for people, how to interact with people, how to engage people, how to ask questions, how to ask questions the right way, how to tell someone that you don't agree with them, but doing it in a way that's very, very respectful, that nurtures a a greater relationship. Very different. I think there's three different avenues for all three of those examples we talked about. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's making me think about a lot of things. One is the difference. I mean, you know, people will talk about, um, you know, we, 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 you know, we want to provide um, education and coaching around lean leadership. Well, mm-hmm. at some point you got to start with just, just leadership. Mm-hmm. One thing I appreciated uh, it, unfortunately now, you know, this lean journey at um, Theta Care in Wisconsin is a past tense discussion but a decade ago, one thing I was really impressed with was that they were making a very specific and intentional investment in uh, man- management development courses, leadership development that that was you wouldn't have even put a lean label on it. Like there are some things we might call lean leadership practices like, well, you know, how to effectively facilitate a huddle. Mm-hmm. But before you get like that's all detail, if you don't have a good foundation of um, leadership. And if you haven't selected people who really want to lead, or right. again, I apologize for the Tom Peters way of saying it. If they don't get off on leading people, why are they in that role? They may have wanted um, the salary increase and there'd be different reasons why somebody, um, or they, they might say, okay, well, I'm, I'm up for that challenge, but are we equipping them 
properly for that challenge? And, and, and uh, in a lot of cases, no. And I think one of the other differences, you know, I think of, um, you know, people even within a plant or within manufacturing corporate structures, there's intentional rotation in leader and development in different functions. I, I think it would probably be very rare to have someone get promoted to plant manager who had risen up through the ranks of engineer, engineering manager, engineering director, and now you're going to make him a plant manager with no production experience? Probably mm-hmm. not. Right. Healthcare, um, because I think the professional boundaries are so tight, a physician will get promoted up through physician ranks and then suddenly, boom, you're a hospital CEO. And I don't know if that sets people up for success either. And from my experience, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. So, yeah, it's, it's, I had someone tell me years ago, if, if, if you're a leader and you turn around and no one's following you, you're not a leader. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah. So um, let, let's talk more about, you, you know, there, there are others who, you know, a lot of times people would think that General Motors would be hiring Toyota people to come in and fix us, quote unquote, mm-hmm. tongue in cheek. Um, you, like some other people, had the opportunity to go from General Motors to Toyota. So I'm curious how that came about. And, you know, a real high level open ended question, what that experience, what that transition was like. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting because I was teaching the GMS, the Toyota Production System, to General Motors. They rebranded it to their own thing. Um, but it was interesting when I, when I got a call from Toyota out of the blue. Um, they wanted me to um, come and take a, a sequence supplier specialist position. And I don't know if you're familiar with a, a, what well, a sequence supplier is. Okay. Um, so Toyota is known for just-in-time inventory. I mean, they don't keep more than they need at the line. Um, it's for space. It's for efficiency. It's for flow. Sequence, of, sequence suppliers are a small group of suppliers that deal with like frames, um, your dashboards, your seats, your tire assemblies and all of that. And what a lot of people don't realize, for example, is that like the tire assemblies for the at the plant that I was working at in Princeton for the Tundra, the Sequoia and the Sienna, they were actually being produced and assembled a couple hours before a couple hours before they were going to go on the vehicle, which means that they were being delivered in a truck. Uh, put in this elevator system, and they got over there right before they were needed because they were sequenced. So these tires belong to this specific vehicle. Yeah, and, and the uh, overhead conveyors and things. Oh, this is yeah. magic when you see this choreography and it lines up, and there it is. There's the match. It was it was amazing to go from a General Motors where um, you you get into a production run, and you know what? I've got an extra two thousand blanks. Let's just go ahead and run it. We'll do, we'll, we won't think about the fact that we're delaying the next production run, which is actually going to be shipping parts um, this evening. But now chances are they're not going to be shipping this evening because I'm running these extra thousand parts. Um, uh, or we're going to take up an extra 30 containers when I actually am short containers for the job that's being run two, two machines over. And all of a sudden now I got to run, jump through hoops and find new containers. It was amazing to go from an organization that, thought like that general motors and nothing negative it's just the way they ran to toyota which thought about every single action they took well and to be fair to the general motors people if you take a look at how were they being measured mm-hmm. how was that driving 
mm-hmm. behavior? Were they being measured on these production quantities or were they being measured on on-time delivery? If they mm-hmm. were going to make a decision that boosted the one metric at the expense of the other, I'm sure, you know, they, they, they weren't dumb. I mean, the, the issue wasn't the Toyota people are smarter at mm-hmm. the assembly line level or in, in leadership, but it's just a different approach, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Competing metrics at General Motors. I mean, we stood there all day long and talk about, well, we need, if we get this, our productivity goes up, our numbers go up, um, our run rate goes up. But all of a sudden we're we're messing with these two or three other metrics. But whoever is pushing the production button is the one who's who's gonna win that battle, basically. So yeah, it was a it was a very interesting transition. The difference between General Motors and Toyota for me was that at General Motors, I was teaching lean the Toyota production system. And at Toyota, I lived it. And everybody at Toyota lived it. It wasn't just something you wore on a t-shirt that said TPS. You lived everything you did was the Toyota production system. So So what did they do to um, educate you or coach you or to continue developing you through that, Jay. You know, obviously they hired you because you you had experience and you know helping, you know, if you will, I'll just use the word fix. Helping fix GM might be a parallel to fixing some suppliers, and I'm sure they appreciated that. But how did they really kind of bring you into the fold then of living TPS other than what was being modeled around you? Um, they mentored me. Mm-hmm. They mentored me. Um, I'm going to say someone's name, Brian Bold. He was my manager when I first started. He was probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And it just intimidated the crud out of me because I was pretty smart too, but man, and he, he taught me and took the time to teach me what it meant to be part of Toyota, not to just do the job, but to think differently. And that's what I try and tell people is, is what we want to become starts with thinking differently about what we do, not just doing something different, but thinking about what we do. Um, And then, Every interaction that I had just reinforced the lean principles, the Toyota production system, the respect, the Kaizen, always looking for continuous improvement, always looking for that, even the little teeny weeny things. I mean, those are the things that make Toyota different than everybody else's. They don't see this little thing right here as insignificant. They see it as important enough to do something about. Um, but you're right. So when I started working with the, the sequence suppliers, the goal was to embed the same principles into the suppliers because Toyota is smart enough to know that you are only as good as your suppliers are, period. And that's why I ended up going to Caterpillar because Caterpillar realized that and said, hey, we want our suppliers to improve so that we can get better. So it was it was amazing. That was probably when I when I look at my career, Toyota was the the not the pinnacle, but the turning point of my career because it gave me something that few people have on their resume. I guess the easiest way to say it. Well, so I, you know, I had a chance, this was probably going back to uh, maybe 2005. Um, I forget. Uh, anyway, I had a chance to follow up with um, the second plant manager, Larry Spiegel, who I worked under. Um, he was retired from General Motors. He was teaching at the University of Michigan. And, you know, I asked him for some reflections. And in in summary, one thing he said was that looking at some of those other leaders that I was quick to criticize and I still have bad memories of, you know, these name, you know, these shaming and blaming, Mm -hmm. spitting and screaming leaders. And and I asked him, like, what, you know, it's like, I think I basically asked, like, why were you so patient with the number two 
production superintendent. He was behaving in a decidedly non-lean way. He was not behaving the way you were modeling. Um, like, help me understand, like, you know, you know, you know, like what you, at some point, you know, you, you help people change or, you know, you move them off into retirement, retirement mm -hmm. maybe. And so one thing I learned was that they were fraternity brothers from uh, General Motors Institute, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where my dad went to college. It's now Kettering University. Mm -hmm. That might have partly explained um, the long leash, if you will. Um, but then Larry did say maybe um, more instructively that, um, you know, people like uh, his name was Bob, the, the plant superintendent, uh, that people like Bob didn't have the good fortune that I had to really live in that new me environment mm -hmm. and to be exposed mm -hmm. to what I was exposed to. And I think that was like personally transformational for, for Larry. Cause mm -hmm. you know, he, um, you know, was a uh, kind of, you know, he, well, I mean, he's still, I think he's still with us, but you know, he was, you know, kind of a short fire plug of a guy, like, you know, kind of Pittsburgh accent, like, you know, he kind of brought, was kind of brought up and I'm sure thrived in kind of the rough and tumble combative, Right. General Motors. Like he he wasn't uh, a shrinking violet or anything. He wasn't, you know, people would comment about, oh, kumbaya. And I'm like, no, I don't think that was necessarily the first 20 <laughs> years um, of his time with General Motors. And, you know, but he I, it was a good lesson for me of like, be careful being judgmental of people who haven't had the benefit mm -hmm. of having good role models. And I understand better now that for somebody like Bob, um, change would be a process. Mm -hmm. You don't just flip a light switch and be a different type of leader immediately. Right. He may have been trying, and I, I just didn't have insight into that at the time. Yep, that makes perfect sense because if you look at um, when I left General Motors, it took time for me to come down. You know, being a Marine, I like confrontation. I can handle it. It's kind of fun. But going to Toyota, that's not how you dealt with people. That's not how you engaged people. That's not how you became part of a team. And so it took me a while to figure that out. And it happened because people took the time to coach and mentor me, yeah. leadership. So. Uh, so I was about to ask you, you may have already answered it. Um, and this question will follow up thinking to your transition out of Toyota. But when you came into Toyota, what was the most difficult thing I was going to ask? Was it Was it just that sort of bringing it down and changing your style a little bit or what was the most difficult thing? I think the most difficult thing was going from a union environment to a non-union environment where everybody was actually part of the team. You didn't have us versus them. We're all us. There is no them. It's, it's us. In fact, including our suppliers, um, it's all us. So I, I think learning to deal with the fact that there isn't two cultures, there's one culture, us, um, was probably the most difficult. But once, you know, you figure that out and once you realize it and you, you start to trust it, um, that there's not something around the corner just waiting to jump out at you mm -hmm. when you do finally trust it. Um, it was a very easy transition. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that that. Yeah. OK, well, good. I'm glad I'm glad I asked. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. reflection. And then the, the follow-up, same, same question, different circumstances. What was the most difficult thing about going back out into a non-Toyota company? <laughs> oh, this is a whole different hour episode of its own. <laughs> no, just an hour. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, first off um, the fact that when I went to, went to Caterpillar and Caterpillar is a great company, 
but they are 100%, at least during my time, they're 100% market driven. So the market dictates, you know, their stock price and all of that, that it drives their decisions, plain and simple. Um, the more you can get out of the plant, regardless of the, if there's a demand for it or not, the better. Uh, but going from Toyota to Caterpillar, I was already at somewhat of a disadvantage because as soon as people saw the Toyota name, they're like, you want to reduce jobs here, don't you? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is all about. It's not about reducing jobs. It's about understanding our processes and becoming better at what we do every single day. That was by far getting past the whole T on my resume thing. That was by far the most difficult part. And that's a challenge in healthcare. I face that huge all the time. And it's born from, I can't speak to Caterpillar, but in healthcare, there's this longstanding habit of organizations trying to um, hit bottom line numbers by um, laying off employees. And mm -hmm. so they, they've been burned by that, scarred by that in the past. It's often done by outside consultants with spreadsheets and benchmarks and numbers. And mm -hmm. that's a race to the bottom. That's a, a different soapbox that I... Uh, climb up onto, but yeah, you have to, you have to educate. Um, yeah. So a lot of times they, they don't know anything about lean or Toyota, but you're an outside consultant and that triggers fear or nowadays, you know, people have their preconceptions. I'm speaking about coming into healthcare. Like mm -hmm. in 2005, when I started in healthcare, people were like lean, what, huh? I mean, right. it was a good opportunity then to try to you know, educate them from kind of a blank slate. But now, you know, people have no colleagues where the health system, unfortunately, did equate lean with layoffs. And mm -hmm. I think that's a horrible misunderstanding. It's taking that old habit of laying off staff, which, you know, Toyota, um, you know, it's, it's a decidedly non-Toyota approach. Right. To do that. Um, so, yeah, you, you, end, you, you end up having to dig yourself back up out of a hole, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think a lot of the reason that healthcare has gone that way is because reducing headcount to meet your budget is the easiest course of action. It is by far the easiest. Yeah, in the short term, absolutely. But And that's what I try and get leaders in healthcare to understand is that the only way you're going to become world-class is if you have world-class processes and world-class people. But if, if every time you have a, a budget crunch, you reduce your people, you're never going to have world-class people because the people that are at the top of your echelon, the most talented people you have, they've probably already got three or four other hospitals that have called them within the last three or four months asking if they're interested. And so what you end up having is you go through this cyclical up and down. People stop trusting the leadership. All of a sudden, they realize... I don't trust this organization. Um, and so the great employees, the top 10, 20%, they find somewhere where they know that they're going to be successful and be able to stay. And so all of a sudden you, you start to slowly reduce your pool down to the bottom 50%. And then we, well, why can't we be first world-class? Why can't we have top level quality? Why can't our people be engaged? Well, that's probably because of the way you've been leading. Yeah. I mean, I've heard somebody, um, explain in healthcare, you know, very experienced healthcare leader. Um, once they had understood lean and coming around, they're saying, well, back, you know, the, the common dynamic is um, when things are growing, we don't really know how to manage our processes. So we throw people at the problem. We grow right. by throwing people at it. And then when times get tough, we don't know how to manage our processes. So what do we do? We, we feel uh, for, you know, you see the, the releases come out and regret 
is um, stated, but you know the the leaders or a spokesperson will say something like, you know, we had no choice or we were forced to lay off. And I'm like, nonsense. I make the same face for those who aren't watching on YouTube. You see the face Jay made. It, it, it's it's a choice, and and you know they they should own that choice and maybe research alternatives. But I will sing the praises of um, Dr. Eric Dixon, who is a, a CEO at UMass. Memorial Health. And I interviewed him earlier uh, in, in 2020, um, the Habitual Excellence podcast. See, I'm getting another plug in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but episode 11 of that Habitual Excellence series, where um, Eric talked about even in the pits of the pandemic, you'll, I think, appreciate this so much, Jay. Revenue had dropped 40%. That's totally a situation where a lot of organizations would say, well, look, our hands are tied. What do you expect us to do? The community wouldn't even criticize them for it because it's a pandemic. But Dr. Dixon, um, with his experience with Lean and realizing that this is an investment, he's got a a former Toyota person coaching him Mm -hmm. for many years. Eric went to the board and he said he had to sell them on it, say, we're not going to furlough anyone. We are not going to lay off anybody. We are going to commit to our people. We are going to invest in process improvement. And he said, when things then started picking back up, he's like, we're a better organization now than we were before the pandemic. And I think that's beautiful. That's that's such a powerful, I can't say enough about what they've done there. That's absolutely correct. I talk about that in length in my my book is that, you know, Toyota looks at things differently. When when Toyota, we'd have the cyclic cyclic environment where sales would drop, they didn't lay people off. They had this pool of of, um, contract employees that they would let shrink and expand, but those would also be the people that they pulled into the full-time positions. But when we went through those, those, those times of expansion and contraction as far as volumes, we took that time to fix our processes. We took that time to, to train our people, to, to improve our equipment, continuous improvement, so that when, when we came back out of the dip, we were stronger, smarter. Our processes were fixed. They were more robust. And we came back just way better than when we went, when we went in versus dropping our people because when you get rid of your people, some of the good people are going to leave too, just because they can. And all of a sudden you come back a lot weaker than when you went into it. It's, it's a different, mm-hmm. different philosophy. Well, You're exactly right. I think of on the flip side, the loyalty oh. is engendered by um, that commitment. And, you know, you talk about, you know, I think it's a difference between short-term and long-term focus. You talk about how Caterpillar, um, like a lot of public companies was probably driven very much by the quarterly um, stock guidance and the analysts mm-hmm. and are we going to beat our estimates or not? You know, Toyota is a public company, but um, it's just, you know, there's there's a different approach. I think of a company like Amazon. I don't think Amazon is necessarily a lean exemplar, um, but Jeff Bezos, you know, they're a public company and Jeff Bezos has basically said, hey, we're going to be reinvesting in the long-term growth of the company. If you don't like it, you don't have to buy our stock. Right. I, I believe, you know, he was saying at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can give give credit to people. You know, point one of, and I'm, I'm going to hold up, um, the, I don't, the I don't know if you've way. seen the second edition of Jeff Leiker's book, The Toyota Way. We're going to mm-hmm. be able to do a podcast about it. But of those 14 principles, point number one, like I almost want to scream at people, number one is take the long-term perspective, perspective. even at the expense of the short-term. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know about you. I've never had anyone call me up and say like, oh, we want to do this lean thing. We want to be like Toyota. Can you help us be better with long-term thinking? Not once. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't happen. Um, I'm working with an organization right now. It's a private hospital system that gets that though. And it's very refreshing. It's very, very refreshing because they do get it. And they realize that where they are right now versus where they want to go isn't a one-year journey. It's not a two-year journey. It's probably not even a five-year journey, but they're not in it for the short term. So the decisions they're making right now are the decisions that are going to allow them to be successful in two, three, five, ten years. That's the long-term perspective. And that's a whole whole different way of thinking for a lot of leaders anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. So there, there's kind of a systemic advantage of being, um, if you're privately held, I mean, it seems like a lot of the great lean examples out there are often um, family, you know, privately held, multi-generational mm-hmm. family businesses who are thinking long-term and they they don't have anyone breathing down their neck and saying, you've got to hit the annual number. I mean, I've, I've seen that, you know, there are some private not-for-profit health systems that for whatever reason, still feel pressured to hit that end of year number. Mm-hmm. Yep. And have similar dysfunctions, even if it's not being driven by investors or a stock price. Right. I worked for an organization um, as a VP of operational excellence. When we went through a downturn, the very first decision that we made as a leadership team is that we're taking a 25% reduction in our pay. Mm-hmm. No bonuses, mm-hmm. 25% reduction. That was the very first decision and announcement we made so that anything that happened other than after that people already knew that we were that we were trying first to do everything we could to avoid any any other um, activities required during that downturn so yeah you don't see that very often yeah and that's that from my trips to japan um even though you know it's fair to say not all japanese companies are toyota right it does seem like there is a very common management dynamic where the top senior leaders take the hit first Mm -hmm. and then they are the last to recover if pay cuts or things end up you know rolling down toward the front line um and you know uh, patrick adams you know was was talking in in our episode you know you think of um, servant leadership from his time in the military you think of the simon sinek book uh, leaders eat last Mm -hmm. And, and patrick had a great story about going through uh, he called it SEER training about like if you were going to be a POW, what to expect okay. and what to do. And it wasn't just like, oh, here's a manual, read it. Like it was experiential right. practice and simulation and training. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, there was a food line and the captive, the made up captor com- country was, you know, I think intentionally putting uh, the officers at the front of the line. And feeding them first and serving them soup. And then the big soup container was, uh, as Patrick explained, accidentally knocked over. Mm-hmm. And now there's no soup for the troops. And um, the officers in that training, almost instinctively, or it's part of the culture, started dividing up their soup mm-hmm. for others. Yep. Absolutely. beautiful about that. It, it is. It, it's called living the leadership. You, you live leadership. It's not something you you just... It's not something in passing. It's not something you wear on a badge or, or is on the the sign in your parking spot or anything like that. It's something you live every single day. Yeah. 
So the the book, um, again, that Jay mentioned, our, our guest again has been Jay Hodge from Jay Hodge and Associates. His book is The Lean Treasure Chest. You can find it um, on Amazon. Um, the podcast uh, is The Thousand Year Legacy. So I'll invite people and encourage people, go um, go find that and uh, subscribe and, and take a listen and uh, and give that a shot. I will be um, doing the same. And um, Jay, what, what's your uh, your website, your firm's website, or what would you point people to if they want to connect with you, learn more about the work? Sure. Um, they can go to our company website, www.thelettergehodgeassoc.com. Um, and it's got you know everything about our company, all the people in, in uh, the network that, that I work with. Um, and it's all about our clients, plain and simple. It's how we define success is our clients. That's great. That's well said. And um, that's a good way to keep getting more clients. You know, God, God's taken care of me for many, many years. I know he'll continue to do so. Yeah, that's great. Um, So Jay, uh, let's do another one of these uh, before. That'd be great. I think we can take a deeper dive into um, your experiences working within healthcare and and, and serving as a, a consultant and a coach for organizations. So, um, well, great. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd be more than uh, overjoyed if you would uh, be a guest on my podcast as well. All right. Well, I, I, I would be happy to, and um, I'll hope I have something helpful to contribute. Oh, I think I you start do. thinking, I don't know my what, thousand year legacy. I'm something <laughs> to noodle over, <laughs> over the holidays. That's deep. Uh, it is a deep one. So yes. Great. Great. Well, Jay, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing and, tolerating some of my stories that you trigger and I throw back at you. No, thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate you uh, doing this podcast and everything you add. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.